and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Global Health. It is November 2022, and I'm Liam Messin. This month, I'm joined by Dr. Kate Grabowski, Assistant Professor at John Hopkins, USA, and Joseph Kagaai, Senior Lecturer at Makare University, Uganda. They're co-authors on a new study investigating STI prevalence in two populations in Uganda, following mass-scale combination HIV interventions in the region. I started by asking Joseph to explain exactly what these HIV interventions are. Well, the time we conducted this study was somewhere in, around in 2019. This was a time when combination HIV services were available uh, with the support of the PEPFA program. This gave us a, a, an opportunity to give a whole range of services, which we call the combination HIV prevention services, including HIV testing services, which are really the gateway to getting into treatment services with antitroviral medicines. These were also available uh, at the time we did the study. We also had a voluntary male uh, circumcision also already uh, rolling. And, and, you know, a few people had started to uh, get on to uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV prevention. And we, at the time, we really had very good coverage of, of these services in uh, uh, the, study, the communities where we did the study. At the time, we had really moved up to, to really achieving even the UNAIDS, uh, uh, you know, 95, 95, 95 goal with the approximately 90% of the HIV-positive persons in the cohort that we saw in the communities virally suppressed, which was really, really a, a great thing. This, this, this uh, you know, was the goal of the program, and, and we really achieved it much sooner than anticipated. So we're doing very well in terms of uh, rolling out the, those services. In uh, the study communities, we had about 50%, almost about 50% of the men circumcised. Uh, they target uh, for male circumcision uh, for the country programs is to get to 80%, right? Uh, but we're not there yet. We were not there yet by then. But this was uh, even much better than what was being seen nationally, which was still lower than 50% at the time. Um, so, yes, we, we had fairly good coverage with, with circumcision. Kate, uh, and now, if you could, take us through the paper. What did you do and what did you find out? Sure. Um, so we conducted a cross-sectional study of sexually transmitted infections in southern Uganda. Our research was nested in an ongoing longitudinal population-based HIV surveillance cohort called the Rakai Community Cohort Study. The Rakai Community Cohort Study, or what we call the RCCS for short, uh, does surveillance in 40 different communities in south-central Uganda. The area that we survey has very, very high HIV burden. It was where the first cases of HIV in East Africa were identified. And in terms of Uganda, it has the highest burden of HIV nationally. Uh, about anywhere from 9 to 40% of persons who live in our study communities are living with HIV. So again, just a very, very high HIV burden. Many years ago, like 30 years ago, we did a, a study on sexually transmitted infections. But since that time, we, we have had no information on what the burden of non-HIV sexually transmitted infections 
has been. So we received some seed funding from uh, the Center for AIDS Research uh, here at Johns Hopkins to do um, a population-based study in two of our RCCS surveillance sites of chlamydia, of gonorrhea, herpes simplex virus 2, syphilis, uh, and trichomonas infections. And um, I think it's really important to keep in mind the design of our study, which is population-based. So the RCCS, um, in which this study was nested, again, it goes and does a census of everybody in the community and everyone who's age eligible, so between the ages of, of 18 to 49 in this particular study, are invited to participate in the study. And if they're capable of providing informed consent, they're enrolled. So in comparison to past studies on sexually transmitted infections, this is a little different because we're enrolling everybody regardless of their symptoms for STIs, regardless of whether or not they're seeking treatment for STIs. And so this is really um, giving us a sense of what the true underlying burden of these infections are in the community. So, so yeah, so we went out and we, we, we did this study in two of the RCCS communities. One was a rural community and then had some semi-urban trading centers around it. We call that the inland community in the paper. And then the other community was a fishing community along the Lake Victoria coast. And the fishing communities along the Lake Victoria, Victoria coast and, and Eastern Africa have had historically very, very high burden of HIV. This particular community we were doing surveillance in had 40% HIV prevalence. And then the inland community um, had about 12% HIV prevalence. So we invited everybody um, in these two communities to enroll into our, our survey. We called it the Sexually Transmitted Infection Prevalence Study, or STIPS. Um, I'm not very creative with acronyms, so <laughs> it is what it is. So we, we enrolled everybody in these two communities into the STIPS study, and we tested them for these sexually transmitted infections. And we found just extraordinarily high burden of these STIs. Um, about 10% of our study population had chlamydia and gonorrhea. Nearly um, 15 uh, to 20% of the women in our study had trichomonas infection. In the fishing communities in particular, we found very, very high levels of high titer syphilis. Um, we found 9% of uh, the study population in our fishing community had RPR titers to syphilis of one to eight or higher. And, and that's just incredible um, in terms of a population level study. That's the highest uh, estimates of high titer syphilis I've personally ever seen. So, um, so just very, very high burden of, of STIs in these communities. Were there any other groups that were particularly vulnerable um, to STIs or showed a higher burden? So, yes, as Kate started off, definitely we saw a much higher burden of, of STIs uh, within the fishing communities compared to the more inland rural communities. The burden was still significantly higher among women compared to men. So, you know, about almost like fourfold higher among women compared uh, co compared to men. And uh, certainly persons uh, with HIV uh, had a, a much higher burden relative to the HIV negative uh, uh, persons, or almost uh, twofold uh, uh, higher. Uh, this even includes uh, pregnant, uh, pregnant women. So uh, HIV positive pregnant women had a much higher burden of uh, STIs uh, compared to their HIV negative counterparts. Of course, I've talked about the differentials by uh, by fishing, whether fishing or inland, 
but even the specific, if you went to the different specific uh, uh, STIs, uh, there were really sharp differences between different uh, STIs between fishing and non-fishing communities. Yeah, I, I just want to add a little bit to that. So I think that's a great summary. Like Joseph mentioned, again, we had um, substantially higher burden among people living with HIV in our study population. And and again, yeah, pregnant women living with HIV were, were nearly twofold more likely to, to have a curable sexually transmitted infection. So that's gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas, or syphilis compared to HIV negative pregnant women. But just on pregnant women alone, so we had 107 pregnant women in our study. About 30% of them were um, living with HIV. But uh, among pregnant pregnant women in general, they didn't have any difference in levels of curable sexually transmitted infections compared to women who were not pregnant living in the same communities. And to me, that was really surprising because women who are going into care should be getting screened for these sexually transmitted infections, theoretically. And, and I was hoping to see lower burden um, among pregnant women, but we just didn't see that. And so I think that's a really important point and kind of gives us a, a sense of, of how our programs are really doing in addressing STIs um, among pregnant women. Joseph described a very in-depth series of HIV interventions. And Kate, you touched on this. But why are the current practices uh, seemingly insufficient to prevent STIs? Interventions for uh, STIs, um, the current interventions really for STIs, uh, for persons uh, with HIV, for instance, in all these clinics, even non-HIV, first of all, the screening for STIs is based on symptoms. You know, people ask about the symptoms, the health workers will ask about the symptoms of STIs, you know, whether someone has uh, uh, any discharge, genital discharge, or they have some pain. And that is um, all that is done, you know, asking about whether or not they have uh, uh, symptoms or they have a genital ulcer disease. They will ask about those symptoms. And it is uh, when uh, they have uh, the the report any symptoms that uh, they are managed, uh, the, the, the treatment is given. And so this is what we call syndromic management of sexually transmitted infections. Of course, the medicines themselves are sometimes not available in the majorly the government health facilities where most of our clients would go. So uh, that they would most of the times have to buy medicines which have been prescribed by the health workers. So it's we don't have real diagnostics uh, that would do uh, objective diagnosis of these uh, uh, STIs, such as taking a vaginal swab or or, or a penile miato swab and really do some good diagnostics. And uh, I think even even in this paper, we still showed that. um, uh, the sensitivity of uh, just syndromic uh, symptoms indica- indicative of STIs, the sensitivity of that was very low. Um, I think it was in the regions of about 50% or less uh, for women and men. So meaning that if you do syndromic screening of STIs, you miss so many, you miss more than half of the people uh, that have STIs, right? You miss more than half of them that have STIs. So we meaning that, you know, 
people get in contact with the healthcare system, but the healthcare system really fails to detect uh, these STIs. So this, this, you know, this means that we, 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 there's, there's a huge, really huge need for better diagnostics integrated within the, the HIV say, services, within, within the HIV services where we are seeing a disproportionately high burden of, of STIs. So um, really, I think that is uh, what we do uh, for STI management at this time. And uh, definitely, it is inadequate. And what would, what would you like to see done in the future to, to address STI prevalence? Are new diagnostics alone sufficient? In terms of the next questions, like, should, is that what we need is better diagnostics? I mean, I, I think that's right, right? <laughs> we, we definitely need better diagnostics. I mean, we, we need any diagnostics, really. I really think it's important that everyone understands that we do not use really any diagnostics at all for sexually transmitted infections and most of Africa. And um, as Joseph pointed out, more than half of the infections detected in this study were asymptomatic. And also um, just to underscore that treatment is an issue as well. Treatment isn't always available. Uh, people have to pay money for it. And, and so there's this whole um, issue of the STI care cascade um, that has huge gaps really at every step of the way. I really think that these diseases are, are neglected. <laughs> uh, you know, there's just, there's just so many holes and gaps and people have been, have been talking about this for a very long time and there's been very little movement on it. And even with all these interventions, Kate, are they, are they cost effective? Can, can we afford this? So, so we get that question a lot. The, the cost of STI diagnostics really right now, um, with the exception of, of syphilis rapid tests, I think, are really just very, very expensive. And um, even in our own studies where we're trying to integrate HIV and STI care, you know, we've approached diagnostic companies and many of them will tell you, you know, we don't see a market um, for these diagnostics in Africa. And so it's it's going to take a lot more than just saying, okay, we need to bring diagnostics to Africa. We really need the global community to come together to reduce the cost of these diagnostics, to make them feasible uh, to implement in the types of settings that we work in. And we also need different types of diagnostics. Um, there's a lot of point of care diagnostics on the horizon, which would be great. You can implement them in all kinds of settings. But again, the cost of these items need to come down. We've been talking again to various companies and they're anywhere from 50 to $100 for a diagnostic. And that's just too expensive. Um, so we need to think about how we lower the prices of these uh, diagnostics to make them realistic in low and middle income settings. Now, it would be uh, remiss uh, not to at least mention uh, the still ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Have you seen any impact on STI or HIV uh, prevention in Uganda uh, because of SARS-CoV-2? We were very much concerned about the impact of COVID-19 on, uh, on the HIV programs in, you know, and, and all other health services. And, and you know, this was a huge concern uh, for the entire country, the Ministry of Health, people are, are funding the HIV services. So, so we anticipated that 
COVID would disrupt service delivery. And, and I think that was really good thinking on the on, on part of the ministry and on part of the, the, the people that were really funding the services. Lots of measures were put in place to ensure continuity of HIV services. So, for example, uh, we were worried that people would interrupt um, uh, their uh, uh, HIV treatment, their antiretroviral treatment, which would have had really, really, really huge concerns, uh, really, you know, such as emergence of resistance here and there. But what we did was to really line list all the people that uh, were on treatment and made sure that we reached out to them in time and gave them medications that would take a, a much longer period of time, uh, what we call a multi-month dispensing. So someone takes medicines for, for six months or three months and keeps with them because at the time we had all these very difficult travel restrictions imposed by, by, by the ministry, by the, by, by the government. And so which made it very difficult for people to, to reach health facilities for medicines. So this was very worrying. However, health workers had uh, were, had special permissions to to move out and reach out to communities and give out the medications in the communities. And even patient peers were allowed to go uh, take medicines to uh, their colleagues. But again, we, were, we we didn't know how well this would address the the the, the, the impact of COVID on services. But we have looked at our data, um, and, and we really don't see much evidence of of, of, of a significant impact of uh, HIV uh, of the COVID pandemic on uh, uh, service utilization, HIV service utilization, which is really a really 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 good thing. We were really worried that you know. Even, you know, we could get, since we are not taking out prevention services as we should, that we could easily see a surge in HIV, new infections or HIV incidents, which we don't have really evidence for. Uh, we continue to see declines in, in, in HIV incidents with the, the scale-up of combination HIV interventions. And we know that these were not really severely significantly disrupted by COVID-19. So we have continued to see a decline in new infections uh, of HIV at the same time. Of course, we did not monitor the trends of uh, sexually transmitted infections um, uh, th you know, uh, throughout the period of COVID, because we didn't really have the funding to do that. We have also seen the behaviors or trend, behavioral trends indicate that actually behavior tended to be better during the COVID period uh, than before. So for instance, we, we saw less transactional sex, right? Less transactional sex. So um, we, we also actually saw uh, lower pregnancy rates during the time of COVID. So this 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 gives you a sense that there was a reduction of sexual activity, sexual activity during the period of COVID. Um, though we haven't really tested the, you know, looked at the STIs, one might infer that actually with the, this reduced sexual activity or high risk sexual activity. Uh, you probably might see a, have we could have seen a reduction in uh, sexual transmission infections, but uh, I think we are yet to study uh, that and, and be uh, very very clear about that.
But generally, the COVID-19 really, I think, did not significantly impact uh, HIV prevention efforts and 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 uh, and and behaviors, sexual behaviors, uh, seemed better than before. Uh, so one and you know we probably could anticipate a reduction in STIs and and continued reduction in HIV incidence. Thank you very much. And you can read their research online now on thelancet.com. Thank you again to both of our interviewees, and thank you for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast any place you usually get podcasts.